Following the sermon, we'll sing our response, hymn 54, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our translation, there are closing quotation marks at the end of verse 14. But really, verses 15 to 21 of Galatians 2 is a continuation of Paul's response to Peter in the conversation or the confrontation that he had with him in Antioch. We heard last time, which was last August, so you likely do not remember that. We heard last time that Paul called Peter out for his hypocrisy. And he warned him about the seriousness of what he was doing when suddenly he was changing his behavior out of what amounts to fear of the opposition. But he doesn't stop by asking Peter how he, as a Jew, who was now living like a Gentile, could imagine that somehow it was okay to force Gentiles to live like Jews. He continues to explain why it was so important to not try to rebuild what he had torn down, as he says in verse 18. Because the gospel message is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And because of what his crucifixion and his resurrection mean for those who are united to him by faith. You could say that this is really a back-to-the-basics message. And you might think, well, I've been a member of this church for 50 years or or however long, and I really don't need to hear this back-to-the-basics message one more time. But brothers and sisters, think of it this way. Paul was recounting a conversation that he had had with the Apostle Peter. You could say that this was a message that had originally been preached to Peter himself. And if Peter, the apostle, needed this reminder, and if Paul considered that this reminder to Peter was important for his Galatian readers, and if the Holy Spirit considered that it was important to preserve this message for 2,000 years so that we could receive it, that means that we need this reminder too. And so in this message, I'm going to focus our attention specifically on verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the first thing before we take a a direct look at that verse, the first thing we need to do is examine how the Apostle Paul leads up to this beautiful message. Paul, first of all, reminds Peter of who they were. They were Jews. They were members of God's chosen race, His covenant people. They had received the covenant promises. They had received the blessings that flowed out of membership in God's covenant people. And these are the blessings that the Apostle Paul speaks about in places like Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, where he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. 
And that means that they weren't like the Gentile sinners. And you could put that word sinners in quotation marks. Because Paul knew very well that when it comes to human nature, the Jews are actually no different from the Gentiles. As descendants of Adam, we are all in the same boat. We're conceived and born in sin. We're subject to all manner of misery, to use those very familiar words. Even as Jews, as members of the privileged people, the people who had received so many blessings, ever since God first called Abraham and blessed him and his descendants, the people who had received the law, the perfect law of God, which we heard directly from the Lord at Mount Sinai, they, even the Jews, could not be justified by works of the law. And so with that understanding, both Peter and Paul put their faith and they put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And so having believed in Jesus Christ, having put their hope in Him, they knew themselves to be justified, that they had been made right with God. They had had their sins forgiven. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they now had peace with God. And that wasn't because of their obedience to the law, but it was because of what Christ had accomplished on their behalf. And so in verse 17, Paul asks a question, and then he provides the obvious answer. Like every other follower of the Lord Jesus, Peter and Paul had sought their justification in Christ. They had looked to Christ and to Christ alone to be made right with God. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, what they had done was to leave the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant behind because all of those types and shadows of the Old Covenant had been fulfilled in Christ. But now, here were these Judaizers. And the Judaizers were coming around and they were saying that in order to be a true Christian... You still need to live like someone who is under the old covenant. And specifically, that you still needed to be circumcised. The implication is, for them, anyone who refused to get circumcised should still be considered to be a sinner. And that means that the Judaizers were, in effect, saying that Christ was a servant of sin. So what happened when Peter was intimidated into rebuilding the wall of distinction and hostility between Jew and Gentile, when he was intimidated by the Judaizers, he was in essence rebuilding what he himself had torn down in his gospel proclamation. Now Peter had been the instrument used by God to reveal The message of reconciliation, the message of unity between Jew and Gentile. Between those who had been a part of the covenant of promise and those who had been estranged from it, those who were outsiders. But now here he was. And by his own behavior, he was in fact, in practice, undoing what he had done in the first place. Or what the Lord rather had done through him. So what Paul is doing here is he's 
is showing Peter just how absurd his behavior was. By going along with the Judaizers, he was acting in a way that went against the very message of the gospel. That message that had been revealed to him and that message that had been revealed through him. And because of that contradiction between his words and his actions, he was proving himself to be a transgressor. And that was Peter. So Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of hard to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Through the law, I died to the law. But there's a connection with what he's going to say later on. In Galatians chapter 4, the verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent his Son, born under the law, Jesus Christ, born under the law, fulfilling perfectly God's law. And because he lived that perfect life under the law, he could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for his people. He could offer himself as the fulfillment of all of the atoning sacrifices of the old covenant. And so in union with Christ, that union that we have through faith in him, we die with him. We die to the curses of the law because apart from Christ, the law, which is a blessing for us in Christ, that law can only serve as a curse, as a letter that condemns. And so now that Christ has come, fulfilling the law, we as Christians living under the new covenant, we live in a different relationship with the law. Now this doesn't mean that the moral law is no longer applicable to us as New Covenant believers. Now, we read the Ten Commandments, and we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday for a very good reason. And we also sing psalms like Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and those psalms speak about the blessings, the great, wonderful blessings of God's law, the goodness of God's law for the believer. So we need to make sure that we read Scripture in its context, not isolate one verse from the rest of Scripture. That only will cause problems. We need to remember that Paul, the Apostle, also says in Romans 7, verse 12, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so when Paul says, I died to the law, He certainly doesn't mean that the law no longer had any place in his life. In fact, it's far from it. For this discussion between Peter and Paul, as Paul reports that conversation, the key to understanding what Paul says here, and really the key to understanding everything that he says in his letter to the Galatians, is the progress of the history of redemption. God, we know and we confess, does not change. His way of dealing with his people also does not change. But 
throughout history, there has been this development and there's been this change and this growth along with that continuity. And the pivotal moment in time, the climax of history, the moment when everything changed, was that 33-year period that came to an end nearly 2,000 years ago. That pivotal moment was the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really what was happening was this. Those who wanted to return to the old covenant law after that time period, after the incarnation of Christ, weren't acknowledging the change that had happened. They weren't acknowledging the radical newness of the new covenant. They were living instead as though they wanted to turn the clock back on the history of redemption. And they wanted to live like believers under the old covenant. And what Paul says here is really a declaration that that this, this idea makes no sense whatsoever. The old covenant function and God's people could live in communion with Him, with the perfectly holy God. They could have Him dwell in their midst and they could could have their glory, God's glory, in the temple, in their midst, even though they were sinners, because of, under the old covenant, the sacrificial system. But that sacrificial system, for its part, only functioned because of what would come in Christ. And now that Christ had come, that whole sacrificial system had been abolished because the perfect sacrifice had been offered. And so that means something very simple, but something very important. That means that going back to the law means rejecting Christ's sacrifice. And Paul goes into greater detail about this later on in his letter. But in the end, it's the cross of Christ that makes all the difference. So when you place your trust in Christ, and not, you don't place your trust in yourself, or in anyone else, or in anything else, that means you're united to Him. That means that His crucifixion becomes your crucifixion. His death under the law is your death to the condemnation of the law. And his life is your life. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a message that is repeated time and again in the New Testament, including in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 6. So when we encounter the same kind of message repeatedly throughout Scripture, that means we should sit up and take notice. Because God emphasizes and He repeats these truths for a reason. And that's because these are not ideas that come naturally to us. Even though we may hear them repeatedly, even though we may confess them, they're still not ideas that come naturally to us. And you can see that just by looking all around us, just by looking at the false religions of the world. Because the false religions of the world all emphasize what we can do as human beings. They emphasize our potential. They emphasize our strength, our effort. And also common misunderstandings 
of the Christian faith do exactly the same thing. So when we get down, when we get discouraged, and when we're battling against sin in our lives, when we're struggling to do better, when we want to be, we're working to be more godly people, our first inclination is always, always to want to try harder, to do a little more, to, to buckle down and get to work. We really have this tendency to want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's like the power of positive thinking applied to the Christian life. You can do it if you just try hard enough. You have it in you to accomplish great things. You just need to put those negative thoughts out of your mind. You just need to focus all of your efforts on self-improvement. And you can do it. That's the message. Now that message is a false message. But it's a message that, that's based on how we have a tendency to think about ourselves as human beings. And we also need to think about how we think of ourselves as followers of Christ. In reality, we need to think about the union that we have with Christ. That's that bond of faith that connects us to Him. And that means that we have a new principle of life working within us. That means that Christ lives in us. His Spirit dwells in us and empowers us. We've been changed. We have been transformed. We have become a new creation. But so apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. And we are not unwilling slaves. But by nature, we're slaves who want to be exactly in the place where we are, in chains and working as slaves to sin. And so, brothers and sisters, when we think about our relationships in this world, And when we consider the world that we live in, we do well to consider this reality. Your non-Christian friend, your unbelieving neighbor or co-worker, the highly respected members of your community and the policymakers and the officials who don't believe in Christ are slaves to sin. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And that is what we would all be apart from Christ as well. But through faith in Christ, you are alive. The psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In Proverbs, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now this is certainly not a politically correct thing to say. But God teaches us this in his word. And so whether it's politically correct or not, we need to believe it, we need to say it, and we need to live by it. Those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God classifies and his word classifies as fools. But as someone who by God's grace is united to Christ by faith, you are no longer a fool. You have a wisdom that the world does not have and that the world cannot have 
unless it leaves the world behind and joins with God's people. You may have a high school education, maybe even less than that. The world tells you that you need to listen to the wisdom of the educated. You may be a laborer who works with his hands and with his back, uses his muscles to make a living. You may be a young mother who has more experience changing diapers, keeping your family fed than with any lofty intellectual activities. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, and we need to remember this, a faithful Christian with even an elementary level of education is wiser than a pagan with multiple PhDs. You are alive and you have received God's wisdom because Christ lives in you. Of course, None of this means that we can take pride in ourselves as compared to our unbelieving neighbors and let that never, ever be so. It doesn't mean that we can have some kind of feeling of personal superiority and we can look down our noses at everyone around us as if we're all that and they're not much after all. Oh yes, it should impact, this reality should impact the way that we relate to them. It should have an impact on, on how seriously we take their pronounce, pronouncements about anything meaningful. It should mean that we are always skeptical about the great declarations that are made by unbelievers. But at the same time, we need to remember that we are who we are, and we have what we have only by God's grace. It is Christ who lives in us. It is Christ who gives life to us. It is Christ who gives us wisdom and not anything in ourselves. So given that truth, that it's Christ who lives in us, what does that mean for us practically? There are Christian truths, we all know, there are Christian truths that are, that are easy for us to repeat, but they're a whole lot more difficult for us to actually put into practice. And that's where Paul goes in the second part of verse 20. He says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So as a Christian, you're still a human being. Christ lives in you, but you are still you. You still have your own personality. You still have your own strengths and your own weaknesses, your own gifts and your own talents. The fact that Christ lives in you doesn't mean that your, your original nature, your individual nature has been taken away from you. Nor does it mean that you're no longer a sinner or that you've been perfected. You still live life in the flesh. You've been made new, but that newness is not complete. That newness is not absolute. So we walk... We walk in newness of life, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. But that newness doesn't mean that we don't have to struggle against our old sinful nature and everything that goes with it. But we live by faith. And that faith is a very specific faith in a specific person. It's faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us and because he loved us. 
Here we see the Apostle Paul speaking of the Lord Jesus in the same way that he spoke about him in chapter 1, verse 4. There he describes the Lord Jesus as the one who gave himself for for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we live by faith. And when it comes right down to it, that's the message of Paul's letter to the Galatians in a nutshell. We're united to Christ by faith in the one who first loved us, who loved us enough to give himself for us. So it's a relationship of trust. It's a relationship of dependence. And that faith relationship is what justifies us. It's what makes us right with God. And it's also how we grow in holiness. Now we still live life in the flesh. And that that means that this life is not going to be easy. The life of faith is not going to be an easy life. It's going to have its ups and its downs. We are going to have our struggles. But while you're struggling, you need to hold on to that lifeline. Seek the Lord in prayer. Immerse yourself in His Word. Relationships, we know from our own experience, all throughout life, relationships require communication in order to thrive. When communication breaks down between a husband and a wife, we know there are going to be problems. When parents aren't communicating with their children or children aren't communicating with their parents, the same thing is going to be true. When we don't communicate with our brothers and sisters in the church, we're not going to have a very strong relationship with one another. And what's true for human relationships is even more true for the relationship that we have with God, with our Heavenly Father. So how do we remain faithful? How do we grow in faith? How do we deal with the struggles and the temptations of this life? How do we deal with the doubts that attack us? We communicate with God. We speak to Him in prayer. We bring our fears to Him and our struggles to Him and our challenges and our discouragements. We bring all of those to Him. We confess our sins to Him openly and honestly. We remain diligent to keep our side of that line of communication open. Communication is a two-way street because we also hear Him speak to us. And that means that we listen carefully to what He has to say to us. We think about it. We meditate on it. We pray about what we hear when we hear Him speak as we hear Him speak in His Word. He speaks there loud and clear. And he also speaks in the sacraments, in the Lord's Supper, in baptism. He confirms, us, confirms to us then and there what he tells us in his word. And so if you want the life that you live in the flesh to be lived by faith in the Son of God and not just in the flesh, hold on to that lifeline by keeping that line of communication open. Trust the one who is eminently trustworthy. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Solomon says in Proverbs 3, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. With all that being said, we can see exactly why the Apostle Paul concluded his discussion with Peter by saying this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. By his actions, Paul's saying here, Peter was in fact nullifying the grace of God. That's what the false teachers who were adding these extra requirements to the gospel message, that's what they were doing. They were making union with Christ and the grace of God meaningless. They were making Christ's sacrifice meaningless because they they were adding extra requirements And they were making those requirements necessary to be united to Christ and to his people. Now the temptations that we face today are certainly different from those challenges of those in the time of Paul and the Galatians when he wrote this letter. Those who said that Christians needed to to submit to the requirements of the old covenant law. Our situation is different, but but human nature remains the same. The temptation for us to want to contribute something of our own to our salvation remains exactly the same, and it remains futile, hopeless. Really, it doesn't have a purpose. It is in Christ alone that we live. And in Christ alone we live because He lives in us. So He lived, He loved us, And he gave his life for us. He didn't die for no purpose. So hold on to him. And hold on to that lifeline. And live. Amen.